As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. State lawmakers can't agree on much these days over at the state capitol, but apparently they can agree on secrecy. From the Fox 6 studios, this is Open Record. We're investigative reporters breaking down the big stories, what it took to get them, taking you behind the scenes. It's the stuff we couldn't tell you on TV. On this episode, you're voting for them, you're paying them. So when a Wisconsin state lawmaker gets investigated for bad behavior, why are the details secret? Hello, everyone. I'm Jenna Sachs here with Brian Polson. Hi. And Amanda St. Hilaire. Hi. Amanda, today we're talking about one of your favorite topics. Oh, is topics. it ever? <laughs> Do you like public records? I don't know. I feel so-so about them. Um, public records, and it's partially because I'm a big nerd, partially I think just because of my path in my television journalism career, but they really do help form the bedrock of our democracy. When anything happens that prevents you from accessing information, from accessing public records, for me, that's just a giant red flag. I'm going to dig into it. And a lot of times I end up doing a story about it. Well, you know that I, I went to the University of Missouri and it was home, the founding of the uh, a group investigative reporters and editors. And the founder of that organization, or one of them, Brant Houston, I was in his class when I was in college. It was an investigative reporting class. And I still remember him having one of the first uh, classes where he talked about what are public records. And he talked about all the different ways your life intersects with government that you don't even think about. You might get a dog license, you know, where you live, you got a speeding ticket. There's all the, you know, your birth certificate, your death certificate, whatever. There's all these different ways that you intersect. And there are records every time that happens. But I remember him saying, there are all kinds of records out there on everyone getting them is not as easy as it ought to be. Exactly. And that's really what this all comes down to. And not seeing what's in the public records, which, by the way, these records belong to you. They don't belong to the government. You are the one who owns the records. The government is the, quote, custodian. They're in charge of maintaining the records. Government by the people and for the people. Exactly. So when you can't see what's in this... It would be like if your bank refused to tell you what's in your bank account. You own this, it belongs to you, and it really can help you see where your money is going, how people are making decisions. So it's something that we should be more aware of than we probably already are. However, most people are busy. They don't have time to go through 400 pages, 4,000 pages of these records and really break down the information that's in there. And that's our job. That's where we come in to help you understand how all of this affects your life. We're in the dark about the process. What's the legislature hiding? This is probably violating the law. So the people you elect work for you, you're the boss. That's why Wisconsin law lets you see public records about 
how the people you're paying behave. Things like investigative records, complaints, witness interviews, recordings, disciplinary actions, final reports, these all show us what happened. But they also show us how public agencies investigate accusations and hold employees accountable. So Amanda, you were surprised when you tried to get those records and you found you hit a wall. That's right. The Fox 6 investigators, as we talked about before, we do a lot of work with investigative records from public agencies. So in the past, they've helped uncover school district sexual harassment, police misbehavior, medical misconduct. And that's why I really didn't think much of it when I requested those same records from the state legislature. But instead of getting the records, I got a denial letter from the Assembly and Senate chief clerks. They said they're concerned about violating victims' privacy and creating a, quote, chilling effect on future investigations. And that's when I checked in with Open Records attorneys April Barker and Tom Kamenek. This is a little bit of the, of the fox guarding the hen house problem. This extremely weak and uh, I think non-viable excuse is thrown up as a roadblock. To hold people accountable so that there are no more victims is important. Tom and April both say there is one big problem with the legislature's reason for denying my request. Wisconsin courts have repeatedly rejected it in decades of case law about investigative records. So what do those cases say? Glad you asked, Brian. This is <laughs> no, my favorite I, I part of the story. because that was the question you wrote for me to ask right at this point. <laughs> sure was. So in one case, a woman won a battle to see disciplinary records of teachers working with her grandson who had special needs. In another, the court said the State Department of Natural Resources needed to turn over records from an employee misconduct investigation and in another case, a court of appeals decision said the public has a right to know how UW investigated allegations of a professor's misconduct. Those are only a few cases. The list goes on. But consistently, the courts are saying that your right to know outweighs these privacy, supposed privacy concerns. So we wanted to know if the courts are saying over and over that your right to know outweighs privacy concerns. So we wanted to know if this is what the courts are saying over and over. Why is the legislature effectively ignoring that and keeping lawmaker investigations secret? And how does that affect you? People can move from job to job in public employment without anyone knowing about their prior misconduct. Um, people can be hurt or injured because employees who shouldn't be doing their jobs are still working. Um, and uh, public employment itself can become lax and ineffective. You know, I, I, I think about this. You talk about all these other cases where the court has said these records should be available because we ought to know what's going on with these kinds of investigations. But these are state lawmakers. These are the people who make the laws. And those laws are the ones that say we should we should have this. Do they feel there is some sort of that they have some sort of uh, it, there should be some sort of exception and why? So currently there is no legal exception for state lawmakers with investigative records. They have other loopholes that we've done stories about. They can delete records pretty much at any point for almost any reason. But they have chosen to subject themselves to the open records law, in part because the public would have a lot to say about it if they tried to totally exempt themselves. We called every single 
state lawmaker, 132. And you two could probably recite by now the message I was leaving them because our office... Because we heard it over and many, over many times. And over. You didn't get... Oh, you had to get tired of saying it because you sure had sort did. of a... You had to ask the same thing the same way 132 times. I did. I did. And I don't know if it was just me trying to see the best in people or me being naive, but... I was I was genuinely surprised by how few even bothered to return a phone call or send an email. So 132 lawmakers, we wanted to find out exactly what you asked, Brian. What's going on here? Is there maybe a, a good reason that you think the court decisions don't apply to this case? Do you think there should be some kind of exception specifically for state lawmakers? And out of all of those, we only had conversations about this with two state lawmakers and only one went on camera and that's state senator chris larson and what did he have to say about it when he actually sat down with you so chris larson uh, describes himself as an open records advocate we spoke to him about the loophole that state lawmakers have where they can delete records he's tried to introduce legislation that would get rid of that loophole He's always spoken very strongly about having a government that's accessible and as accessible as possible. But even here, he stopped short of saying investigations into state lawmaker behavior should be public. He gave a different reason than what the chief clerk said. So the chief clerks were talking about protecting victim privacy. Chris Larson said it was his understanding that this policy was in place to prevent people from weaponizing complaints that are unfounded. Which is fine, except that if you see the whole investigation, then you're able to see the complaint was unfounded, and you're able to see, okay, do I agree with their decision that there was nothing here? Because maybe there's a whole mountain of evidence, and someone wanted to protect their buddy, but they said this is unsubstantiated. We don't know. Or maybe there was a good reason it was unsubstantiated. We don't know if we can't see these records, and that's what transparency advocates are concerned about. Larson did say he'd be open to a change of that rule in the future. He wasn't strongly defending it, but he definitely stopped short of saying this needs to change. And can you tell us specifically what you were asking those lawmakers for in your calls? So I want, well, when I called state lawmakers, I wanted to know what they thought about this policy of not releasing investigations into state lawmaker behavior. And I wanted to know if they were aware of the case law that existed that seems to just directly contradict what this policy is and if they thought they should have a special exception. No one really seemed to want to answer that question. Several staff members just immediately said, we're not talking about this. You've got to talk to leadership. Leadership didn't call me back on this. Well, I mean, the Capitol's a small place, too. Once you started making these (laughs) calls, word got around quickly, and they knew the call was coming. Yes. I had a couple people. they start to discuss as a collective group, how do we want to respond to this, right? Right. Or not respond. Right. And apparently the answer was, you know, maybe she'll go away if, if we don't say anything, but... What ends up happening then is we go through great lengths to point out here's who talked to us and here's the long list of people who did not. And in the aftermath of the story that aired, a lot of the responses I got from people were mostly upset that state lawmakers wouldn't even go on the record 
and say what they thought about it. What stands out about that to me is they are behaving in terms of the response to your individual questions. 132 people were called individually. They were responding collectively in a sense. Talk to the chief clerks. Talk to them. We've got people who will speak for us on this. But if you go to request their records, you've got to request records individually from each one because they are distinct offices elected by a distinct body of people. Each one of those 132 elected officials is its own office. Yes. And they answer to their own set of of voters. But here they are trying to sort of protect themselves, it seems, collectively. Right. You know, state lawmakers can't agree on much these days over at the state capitol, but apparently they can agree on secrecy. You know, my uh, there were a few staffers where I had barely had the first sentence out of my mouth and they knew why I was calling and they tried to shut it down. And with one of them, I asked, if, if your office is so confident that this policy is a good thing, why won't anyone talk to us about it? If this is such a good thing that is so necessary to protect victims' privacy, then I would think you'd want to explain that and have that out in the public. So that was the the so strange thing here. This is one of those things that's very popular among those who are state lawmakers, but they probably know would not be popular with public opinion. And that's why you I would imagine is that is that do you believe that's why they would be uniform in their decision? to support it or not at least object to it, but not want to talk about it. That definitely could be one reason. I think in some cases, uh, some of them haven't really thought too much about open records law and how their offices are responding and what they think. Some of them didn't know what we were talking about when we called and, and asked about this policy. And I found that to be curious because it's a policy that directly reflects records about your behavior. So if if you don't know about it, I would hope you would want to learn more about that issue. And then I, I was really interested in, in the whole conversation about victims' rights and the, this whole argument about why we need to protect these records because the courts have said that that's a non-issue. And even victims' rights groups are not championing the cause of keeping these records secret. I They flat out told me, We don't come down on either side of this issue because we do believe confidentiality is important, but we also believe making sure there are no future victims is important. And if you don't know who has been running around and misbehaving and getting moved and maybe getting slapped on the wrist but continuing the behavior, then it's harder to protect people. Do you ever hear the pushback that maybe requests are too broad? You know, maybe you're not inquiring about one specific incident that you've already heard about, but maybe you're, you're maybe you're going fishing for something and they feel like that could lead to a lot of time and resources spent on their end responding to these requests? In general, with open records requests, I get that. In this case, the Senate and the Assembly have so few investigations into state lawmaker behavior that that argument doesn't really apply here. When it comes to public records, I always find the term fishing expedition kind of funny because the presumption is supposed to be that these records are public. So it shouldn't really matter why someone wants the records. What matters is that they are public and the person has the right to see them. And certainly, you know, we'll go back and forth somewhere and say, how do we make this more manageable for you? Um, you know, I'm, I'm working on a story right now where I think we've narrowed our open records request six different times. 
we'll certainly work with an agency. In this case, that that wasn't their argument at all because they had so few investigations. Their argument was we can't possibly release these documents. What they do instead, which the public might take some issue with, is they release a summary. So you are receiving the information through someone else's filter. So instead of you getting to see the process, how those interviews were conducted, what kind of evidence they look for and decide for yourself, okay, I think they did a thorough job here, or "Mm, it looks like they were trying to protect someone. Instead of that, you have someone else making up your mind for you, where they just say, this was substantiated, this was not substantiated, this was founded, this was not founded. You don't get to see why. You don't get to see if they're making a charge or a complaint maybe sound worse than it actually was for political purposes. So not having that underlying documentation means essentially that you are robbed of the ability to arrive at your own conclusion. It's sort of like saying, uh, hey, I'm I'm panning for gold. Will you look inside my pan here and tell me if there's any nuggets, and I'll trust you to give me a summary (laughs) of what you found. That's that's pretty much what it is. And look, I get that when we talk about public records, it can sound boring. It can sound like a pile of papers, then we're going into the weeds, and the average person doesn't sit around and file public records requests all day, although I can definitely see that being in the Amanda St. Hilaire retirement plan. But but that but, raises a really important question because for people who are listening to this podcast right now who you know think, okay, public records, maybe that's not all that interesting to me. Why does this matter to them? Why would they care if they're not like Amanda St. Hilaire? So if we're talking about state lawmakers specifically, you pay them, you elect them to represent you. So how do you want the people who represent you to behave? Essentially, these people are your employees. So what kind of boss are you if you can't see the records about how they behave? If one of us did something wrong and our boss couldn't access the information about what we did wrong, that wouldn't work. And I don't think anyone would expect that situation to happen in their own employment. In this case, government's supposed to work for you and you can't see it. But it also is something that affects all these other public records that tell you where your money's going, who's making decisions, how they're making decisions. And you may not want to go through 4,000 pages of paperwork. I get that. But that's why we do it. And then you can look at all the documents we got for yourself and make up your own mind. You can trust our analysis of it. You have a lot of different options then when that happens. When you talk about investigation of lawmakers' behavior, I know one of those examples is like a sexual harassment complaint. Yes. Say a staff member complains that representative so-and-so harassed them in, in the office, and there's an investigation that's done, and there are interviews that are done, and there are you know reports that are taken, and you're saying, we can't see any of that. They're not releasing any of that. They might release a summary. Why can't they release those? You said the concern was victims, identifying or, or, or uh, you know, the... Uh, Chilling the, the, chilling the, the chilling effect on victims who might want to report. Why can't names be redacted? Why can't we see that Good someone point. accused representative so-and-so of doing this? Because then if we start to see a pattern, hey, why is representative so-and-so being repeatedly accused by staff members of harassment? And that's the argument that open records attorneys make. They say, look, if from these records you can glean enough information to write a summary to release the public then that means these records should be able to be redacted enough where the public can leaf through them 
What, what did you leave out of the summary? Exactly. What's not there? Exactly. So then are you adding stuff to the summary that wasn't in the records before taking it out? We don't know. Now, the argument that some people who work at the Capitol will make is that these offices are small. There's not very many people it on would, staff. Redacting a name won't always be enough to protect the confidentiality. And in some cases, that's true. But the state legislature isn't the only place that has that. We have a lot of small towns that have small staff. So do they not get to release this? The courts have said, you've got to turn this stuff over. And when you work in government, there's an aspect of your life that becomes public record. There also hasn't been any actual evidence presented that this would have a chilling effect. So people like to talk about the hypothetical of it, but in all of these court cases, I haven't seen any evidence anyone presented that would demonstrate in quantifiable terms the great harm that would occur. There are some people who say, hey, I'm a victim. I don't want my information out there. Open records attorneys say redaction can achieve as much of that as can possibly be expected in government service. I do want to point out, uh, when I spoke with Tom Kamenick, one of the open records attorneys, he brought up that in our Declaration of Independence, there is a public records grievance. In the list of grievances against the king, one of them is a public records issue. They were basically upset that their public records were not easily accessible. It was stored at great distance. They couldn't access how their government was working. So this is something that was uh, not just a minor complaint. It was something that was considered significant enough that it was listed in a very important document to our country. Just out of mild curiosity, how much time do you think you spend every week just pursuing records or going <laughs> through records? Because this seems to be something that you really emphasize. Yeah, the majority of my time, because a lot of what we do, I think there's a misconception when we file a public records request, a lot of times I'll get a call back, well, what story are you doing? I don't know. I haven't seen the records yet. I, I don't wait until I have a tip or until I have a formulated story to request records. Sometimes that's what prompts a records request. But 90% of the records requests I file are, you know, when I wake up at three in the morning to a crying baby and I'm sitting there and thinking about work and I go, oh, I wonder what's in this record. Or I wonder, I wonder what that says. Or I, I wonder if there's every, anything interesting here. I think every mom here. can relate to you on that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sitting there thinking about public records at 3 a.m., hoping my kid goes back to sleep. Um, so a lot of it is just curiosity about what our government is doing. And sometimes I get records back and they're interesting, but they don't become a story. A lot of times, though, when I have trouble getting records, which is happening more and more lately, I feel like, the process of that becomes a story. And that's what some people don't realize. If if there is access that's being denied, and we have all this evidence here to show that that access shouldn't be denied, that is something that's going to be a story because people should know when their right to know is being blocked. That's the dinner bell, which means it's time for our dinner party question. This is a weekly segment where we answer questions we most often get asked as journalists at parties or events or whenever we're out and about. There is a catch. We have no idea what the question is. 
My script says there are several envelopes in front of us, but that is I've never heard of several meaning not, one. There's not the one case. Left. We're down to the last one. So Whose we turn need is it? you to I, I think it might be my well, I mean, turn. I don't think it matters, right? Because there's only one. Yeah. So which one will I pick? I'm gonna pick <laughs> Go for it. I'm gonna pick the one that's here. All Send right. us your dinner party question, please. Okay. <clears throat> Did you send this one in, Jenna? Probably. Do you have a list of questions before you start an interview? Was that yours? No. Somebody else. Oh, that's interesting. Yes and no. I mean, I, I usually have some sort of outline of what I want to ask. Otherwise, you might lose your way in the interview sometimes and you need to get back to it. I'll say when I was a general assignment reporter and my story changed every day and I was setting up interviews on the fly and I was getting them very quickly, maybe I didn't have a list. I just kind of had a mental checklist in my head of a few things I wanted to address. Uh, but with just this job where we have more time, yeah, I have a general outline and I'll jot down a few notes on the way just because you don't want to miss anything. When we have stories that are supposed to be more in-depth and we're supposed to cover such a broad range of information, you don't want to miss something and then have to go back later and say, oh, I really wish that I'd asked that. Um, so yes, I mean, yes and no. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say I'm the same way. I think there is a misconception that we have every single question outlined ahead of time. Lately, from several public agencies, I've had people ask me specifically for my questions in advance before an interview. That's, and that's a very common request. It is. is. Can we see your list of questions And the advance? answer to that is easy because the answer is no. Of course, we're not going to provide someone with our exact questions ahead of time. We certainly tell people, hey, here's what I want to talk to you about. There's a specific area of interest they might have to research ahead of time. We'll give them a heads up. But part of the reason we don't provide that is we don't know exactly how we're going to phrase questions. The interviews really are more of a conversation. And just like any conversation, you don't know exactly where it will lead. In some cases, when you know it's an interview with someone who is perhaps being confronted for something they did or there are going to be tough questions, you know, you have a limited amount of time, you know that... There's always the possibility, I know this has happened to you, Brian, before, where the person takes off the microphone, storms off. So you kind of know what questions you want to get at the beginning in case things go south. And I might have thought about, okay, here's how I need to phrase this, or here's how I want to make sure I get this question in if someone's trying to dodge it. So there's thought that goes into it, but it's not an exact script. Well, as, as I said, the, the number one thing people will ask before any interview is, can you send a list of questions in advance? And, and most times that's not, there's no devious intent. It's just, I want to be prepared. I'm a little nervous. I don't de do TV interviews. And I always tell them, no. And part of that's because we, as a matter of course, don't do that, but also because I don't have one. I don't prepare a list of questions, one, two, three, four, five. As Jenna said, I will have notes. I'll have bullet points. I might know the one or two key questions I want to get to. Those are never the first questions because for me, an interview is always uh, – there, there is a there is an ebb and flow to an interview and sometimes you have to set things up properly. You, you might talk about the easy stuff first that's a little more innocuous to get someone comfortable and then you lead them down the path to let's get to the more serious stuff. And if there is – if this is a confrontational interview potentially – um, there is a time and a place for the hard-hitting question, and it's not the first question out of your mouth. Um, so, but, but I, I don't go in uh, with that list because if you've ever watched someone who has a list of questions, 
They ask one question. You're not listening for the response. Mm -hmm. You're not listening. Did that really answer my question? Do I need to follow up? Wait a minute. They said something that leads us down a much more important path. Instead, they're looking down at their sheet and going, okay, all right. And number two, and then they ask that question. Well, you've missed a lot. And it's probably one of the hardest things I think about being, uh, say, a White House uh, correspondent is you get one question and maybe a follow-up. Follow-ups are the most important questions because usually the first answer is not what you're looking for or is not the thing that reveals the greatest truth. It's as you progress down the path, depending on what's said, you sort of might lead someone to the place where they reveal exactly what you were looking for. I don't know if either of you have read Dan Harris's book, 10% Happier. No, but you probably did that at 3 a.m. during the feeding, <laughs> right? Um, no comment on that. But he, Dan Harris, he's an ABC correspondent, and he's talking about the impact that meditation has had on his life and mindfulness. And he was saying he noticed his work improved. He became a much better interviewer because the idea is to be in the moment. And even if you don't have a list of questions in front of you, it's very easy to be thinking about how do I want to formulate this next question? Because there's a tendency you don't want to sound stupid when you ask it. We're not just asking questions for the response. Sometimes it's for the back and forth, especially if someone's dodging our question. And he said he just noticed his interview skills improved dramatically because he was so intently listening to everything the person said and quieting his mind and not jumping ahead. And it would be very easy to have your mind with the volume turned up racing if you have that list of questions in front of you. Well, I think it's good, though, to have at least a few things written out because sometimes we ask questions and the response leads to more questions and more questions. And then all of a sudden you realize you've asked a million questions about something you didn't expect and, and you, you need to get back. Thing you've got to get back to. Yeah. Exactly. And I will say when it comes to questions in advance, if I'm talking to someone, I need to pull statistics or do some research for me. That's the exception I'll make. If I'm oh, talking course, to someone yeah. at Marquette university who I need history information from or statistical information, well, obviously I'm okay saying, Hey, can you pull this, right. this, and this for me? Um, but it's very different if you're talking to someone about, you know, allegations against them, you don't want them to have time to prepare the exact wording of their statement because that's not going to be the most genuine. Yeah, you want a genuine response that's not prepared, mm-hmm. that's not a statement. You want it to be a, a genuine answer. You want an authentic. But but I, don't get me wrong, though. There's a lot of research into these interviews. Before I do any interview, and I know you guys are the mm-hmm. same way, there's a lot of research that we do. So while I don't have a prepared list of questions, I am prepared. I'm well prepared. The worst thing to do is to go into an interview you know is going to be key for your story and have not done the research, not done the reading, not done the work you need to do to be ready for it. And you're right, having those notes to know I've got to get back to these two or three key points is important. So while you want to follow someone down the path, you don't want to let them, and that's happened before, I'll bet you guys have done it, where you get off track and you realize, then you walk away and you go, I never asked that one thing. Yeah, that the one the thing I qu- needed. the money question. I never asked it because we got off onto a different subject. So you need the notes, but it's not that prepared list of one, two, three, four, five. Right. And the saying is there are no dumb questions, but there are dumb questions. There are in journalism, there can be dumb questions and no way to, there's no way to lose the respect of the person you're interviewing faster than if you say something that's not well thought out or that you get wrong. It, they're not going to respect you. That off said, yes, sometimes I purposefully ask the dumb question, especially if I'm talking to someone who isn't speaking concisely or they're dancing around a point and I just want them to make it. 
I'll deliberately say it back to them wrong. And then you kind of see the sigh like, oh, like you simpleton, let me explain this in as basic of terms as I think you can understand. And inside I'm like, well, right. because that's actually, a, that, that's one of the perils of, of doing this sometimes is in, when I was younger, I wanted to impress the people I was interviewing. Mm-hmm. So I researched things so thoroughly that I asked these really detailed and educated questions. And I got back these very detailed and educated answers that were way too detailed and complicated and nuanced for a news story or for viewers who aren't familiar with the subject matter. And a photographer I worked with who would then chime in and say, hey, can I ask one? And he'd ask the dumb question because he didn't care. Mm-hmm. And he got the best response because people want to explain to the person who doesn't understand something, they explain it much more forcefully, much more concisely, you get a better sound bite. So you're right, there, there's a fine line between appearing dumb, but also sometimes asking the question that elicits a better, more meaningful There's another response. tactic we use too, which is where we'll ask the same question, but in a different way, because maybe the first answer was way too long or... It, it didn't get exactly what you wanted. So people will think maybe you weren't listening, but you, you ask the same question in a different way to get a shorter answer or a more concise answer. Yeah. I thought we could do many episodes on the art of interviewing, but it's really the, the subject, the key to what we do. It is. And I think there's a human tendency. You want people to feel comfortable when you're speaking to them in general, but also when you have an interview. And sometimes that's good if you're speaking to someone who has been through a traumatic experience, if they're comfortable, you're going to have a much better conversation. But then there are times where if if the person is uncomfortable, that can be more important for your story and can be more revealing. And it's not just someone who's accused of doing something wrong. When you ask the uncomfortable questions, that's when things can get interesting. Do you have a question you want the Open Record team to answer? Let us know. Shoot us an email at theinvestigators at fox6now.com. Thanks for listening to Open Record. We'd also like to thank the people behind the scenes making this podcast happen. Producer Pete, Dave Machuda, and Leanne Watson. And if you enjoy listening, let us know. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Please do. And don't forget to check out Fox 6's other podcast, Definitely Milwaukee with Carl Deffenbaugh. If you want more Open Record, just head to our website, fox6now.com. Thank you.